Some time ago, I learned about a relationship book that's really had uh, quite an impact on how I do, how I understand relationships, how relationships work in my life. It was called uh, The Five Love Languages, and I think we've probably talked about it here before, and I think that uh, probably some of you at least know about the book. But the principle of the book is basically this, that every one of us has very specific ways in which we most naturally give and receive love. And uh, the author of the book, you know, broke it down kind of into five categories that go like this. You, you can give or receive love through verbal affirmation, like saying I love you or encouraging somebody or affirming somebody or whatever. Um, through physical touch, a hug or, you know, whatever, peck of the cheek or handshake or pat on the back, whatever. Um, through gifts, sort of indicating, hey, I was thinking about you and this is a token of my thoughtfulness. It's just sort of a way of saying you were on my mind and I care about you. Um, acts of service, you know, doing something on behalf of another person. And, and then the last one was quality time, just spending time together. Just, it's actually, uh, Krista is this way, and sometimes it feels more like quantity time, just sort of being together all the time. is kind of this being together is a way of saying that I love you. And um, I wonder how, if, whether or not you've ever thought about this concept, just with my brief descriptions, I wonder whether you can identify your love language. In fact, just take a second, just one second, turn to the person beside you and tell them what you think your love language is. Go ahead, just turn to the person, tell them what you think your love language, love language is. I, uh, we all have very specific ways of giving and receiving love. And one of the things I've wondered about is about how that relates to our relationship with God. Right? How we process the ways in which we feel loved by God and the ways in which we love God. Because all of us, I think, at times want tokens, we want indications, we want signs that, that God loves us. We want to know and experience in tangible ways that God is there, that God is real, and that God loves us, right? I was visiting my dad uh, in the hospital uh, after his bypass surgery when he, he was taken back into emerge, um, and so I went to visit him in emergency, and I, I wasn't really sure how well he was doing, and so I just parked in like the 15-minute parking section, and I went in, and I started to chat with him, and he seemed like he was in real good spirits, and he was he was, uh, he wanted me to visit for a while. So we chatted for a bit and I said, listen, I gotta go move my car so I don't get a ticket. And I, I went outside and I got in my car and I drove over to the paid parking lot. And as I took my ticket out of the booth, the very first car in the parking lot, the very closest car to the entrance gate pulled out of their parking spot and drove away. And I drove under the gate and I pulled into the very first parking spot and I walked into the hospital and I said to my dad, God loves me. Right? He must have, I think he was rewarding me for going to visit my dad in the hospital. That's what I think. But, but then the next day I went back to visit my dad. He'd been moved up to a floor, so I just drove straight to the parking lot. As I was getting my ticket, the third car on the other side pulls out and drives away, and I went under the gate and just pulled into the third spot, and I was convinced for days that I was God's favorite child. That was just, because we, you know, you're, it's, you're only kind of half serious, but you kind of process things that way. God must, it's just an intuitive reaction. God must love me that this happened to me. And, and the question that drives the text that we're looking at this morning is, what counts as a sign that God loves you? What counts as a sign that God loves you? Because we're going through this series, right, for and against. So we're looking at the heart, attitudes, and, and behaviors, and so on, that demonstrate that a person's heart and life is either for Jesus or against Jesus, and just ask the question of what that looks like by exploring these stories of Jesus' interactions with people who were primarily uh, 
who thought they were for him, but so far have proven primarily to be against him. And so the story we're looking at this morning starts in Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, and it says this. Then some of the Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, we want to see a sign from you. We want to see a sign from you. This is a, a tradition that goes a long way back in Jewish history, right to the earliest Jewish writings, this idea that someone who comes along, who uh, proposes to be a prophet, may have to, from time to time, validate their ministry and their message as coming from God by performing a sign, by doing a miracle, just kind of um, performing this incredible, irrefutable miracle that just uh, you know, had to come from God so that they could demonstrate that God was with them and for them, and God was behind everything that they were saying. Even Moses himself, really the very first prophet of Israel, uh, when God said, I want you to lead my people out of slavery in Egypt, Moses said, what if they don't believe me? And God said, perform these signs, and they will believe. And they did, and it became a part of their tradition that prophets would perform these signs as a way of providing irrefutable validation for the ministry of the prophet, for the message of the prophet. There is a way of proving beyond a shadow of a doubt that this prophet came from God and is speaking on behalf of God. It's interesting. It's an interesting proposal from the Pharisees in the wake of last week's story where Jesus freed a, a man from demon oppression and the Pharisees' response was, I, that's not God at work, that's the power of Satan. That's, that's black magic that he's using. And they get into this whole conversation about is Jesus using the power of God or is he using black magic to do the miracles that he does? And, and so the response is, well, we want to see a sign. If you, if you insist that you're using God's power to do these things in people's lives, then, then validate that with a sign. You know, we, we want to see that God is at work through you. And it's kind of interesting because on one level, as you read the text, you can almost feel like this is a very, in their tradition, a very reasonable, maybe even well-intentioned request from people who are genuinely interested of maybe being open to the reality that Jesus is operating on God's behalf. And so they say, listen, we want to know. Give us a sign. Now, Jesus... Um, well, he kind of sees it differently than that. In Matthew 12, 39, he answered and said, a wicked and adulterous generation asks for a sign. I think it's the word wicked that first tipped me off, that Jesus was not entirely on board with this suggestion, teacher, we want to see a sign. Um, Jesus is denouncing them and saying, listen, your hearts are opposed to the things of God. That phrase, wicked and adulterous generation, adulterous doesn't mean there's you know, a lot of people in their group that are sleeping with folks that aren't their spouse. It's, it's, a, it's a spiritual descriptor that comes out of the Old Testament. The prophet Hosea talked about how as a community of God's people, our relationship with God is like a marriage it is a covenant relationship that is bound together in love in which God's heart is directed towards us and our heart is directed towards God and we're committed to being in relationship with each other and of loving each other and so on. And yet in Hosea's day, people weren't interested in loving God. They were interested in pursuing their own 
happiness and pleasure and doing their own thing and finding their joy and fulfillment outside of their relationship with God. They were, they were cheating on God. And Hosea called them a, a wicked and adulterous generation. And Jesus is kind of directing the Pharisees back to that story and saying, you are exactly like them. You don't love God with all of your heart, with all your soul, all your mind, all your strength. You don't care whether God is at work in my ministry. You're not interested in God's purposes being done on earth as it is in heaven. Um, this, this request of a sign is a wicked request. I can understand Jesus' frustration. Because at one level, I mean, looking these Pharisees in the eye and they're saying, listen, we want to see a sign. There's got to be a sign of Jesus that says, how many more signs do you need to see? Right, like we've, we've been down this path before. If you go back to our teaching series in the fall in Matthew chapter eight and nine, the all in series. I mean, Jesus was cleansing lepers and healing kids with fatal fevers and you know, fatal infections. He was calming storms and restoring people oppressed by demons. He was healing paralyzed, this paralyzed guy. Modern science can't even uh, heal somebody who's, got a spinal cord injury like that. He, he healed a, a blind guy and a deaf mute guy. He healed a woman who had been to doctors for 12 years and couldn't get healing for her issue. He raised a girl from the dead. Even this story just before, Jesus rescues this demon-oppressed guy who is blind and deaf and mute, and he sets him free and restores him to wholeness. And there's a part of Jesus that's gotta be saying, like, how many more signs do you need me to provide? Look at what I'm already doing right in front of you. Never mind the fact, you get the clear sense in Matthew that these are just sample stories. There are these verses that appear throughout the text where it says, and Jesus went through all the towns and villages preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing all of their sick. That this, is, this isn't just, there are some instances that Jesus could point to, that Jesus' whole pattern of behavior, Jesus' whole modus operandi was to bring healing and hope and restoration to the darkness and brokenness and chaos of people's lives, that everywhere Jesus went, it was a sign that God's love was breaking in and on the move and that God was changing things all around people all the time. And there's gotta be a part of Jesus that's saying like, how many more signs do I need to give you? For these Pharisees who maybe thought that they were being for God by wanting to see evidence of God's work in Jesus' ministry and message, Jesus' verdict is that they, their hearts are set against God in asking for a sign, in asking for proof that it really is God who is there and at work in Jesus. Now I'd be, I'd say relatively surprised if there were many people in our community in our uh, three locations this morning who had ever done what the Pharisees had done in a place of cynicism and, and skepticism and criticism uh, with dark hearts wanting to invalidate Jesus demanded that God give them a sign. I, and yet I think that there are probably people all over our locations who maybe out of somewhat of a different spirit have come to God with exactly that kind of attitude. God, give me a sign. Prove yourself to me. Maybe there are some in our community who are more at the beginning of their journey of faith and you just want to know that God is real. 
that there is a God who is there. And, and you have said to God, God, prove yourself to me. I have a friend named James. I was in my office working uh, one week af- weekday afternoon in uh, our Glenridge location. I got buzzed up to the connection lounge because there was somebody who, who had just wandered in off the street, didn't go to Southridge, but just wanted to talk to somebody. So I went into the connection lounge and there was James sitting there on the couch and he was a mess. He was uh, beside himself. And as he talked, the reason he was beside himself was his life was coming apart at the seams. He, he, his marriage was over already, but he was having still difficulty relating to his ex and that was making it really hard for him to relate to his two beautiful daughters He'd lost his job at John Deere when the factory in Welland had closed and he hadn't been able to get back on his feet again. And uh, more recently, his girlfriend, whom he had known since high school, so the person that he said was kind of him in a female form, like they were, he, he just kept saying, we're, we're just perfect for each other. She had just told them she didn't want to ever see him again. He was battling some inner demons with addiction and darkness and, he was just an absolute mess. And he was sharing his story with me. And he said, you know, at one level, he said, I don't even know why I'm here. He said, I don't even believe in God. And I said, what do you mean? He said, I'm an, I'm an atheist. He said, I'm a man of, of science. I'm a man of reason. I will only believe something that I can prove evidentially to be true. So I pray. And I said, what do you pray? He said, I pray, God, flick the lights. I said, what do you mean? And he said, if the God that is described in the Bible is the true God, it should be no small, no uh, big deal for him to just flick the lights a little and let me know that he's there. I mean, maybe you've never prayed for God to flick the lights, but maybe in the middle of your, the lostness of your confusion and doubt or in the middle of the, the pain of grief and loss or in the chaos of relational uh, turmoil and and conflict or you've just wanted to believe in something so bad something to give you hope that you have prayed God show me that you're real show me that you're here prove to me that you're real I don't think it's a question just for people on the front end of the journey of faith I think probably most if not all of us in our own times in our own seasons have prayed that kind of prayer. Maybe not, God, show me that you're real. Maybe, God, show me that you love me. Uh, Last couple weeks, the beginning of June, end of May, beginning of June, Krista and I took our girls to Disney World. Um, Not for the first time we've been before. I grew up going to Disney World. That was our family vacation growing up, and I absolutely love it, and so we have taken our girls to Disney World, but this may have been the last time. There's more to the world to see than just Disney World. And so we're kind of thinking of taking the camper next summer and going to, you know, visit Anne Shirley or something. But we're, we're, we're maybe had our last visit to Disney World, which is kind of sad for me because there's a part of me that loves being at Disney World. You know, it's the happiest place on earth. You walk through the gates and, and there's just, it's just party central. It's festive and it's happy and there's music everywhere and the cast members are pleasant and friendly and helpful and everywhere you look, like people are enjoying themselves and the rides for me are nostalgic and I love f- remembering being a kid and going on some of these same rides and seeing the new rides 
rides and seeing my kids experience the rides. And, and it's just the wonder of being in the happiest place on earth. Except when you walk around Disney World and you pay attention, what you discover is that the happiest place on earth for a lot of people, at least some of the time, isn't all that happy. Because no matter where you go in Disney World, there is always a kid who's profoundly unhappy about their experience at Disney World, right? They're tugging on their mom's shirt and they're bawling and yelling and basically it's usually something like, I said I want that ice cream, you know? Buy me mouse ears. I'm tired of walking. It's so hot, mom. Buy me one of those misting fans so that I can stay cool. Oh, mom, let's go to that show. Mom, why won't you stand in line with me for Dumbo? Mom, I want to meet the princesses. Like, it's just on and on and on, demanding, demanding, demanding. And, and it just kind of struck me like it never has before. Here we are. We're standing in the middle of the happiest place on earth. And here is this kid screaming these demands at his parent, and every one of them to my ears, every one of them sounds like, show me that you love me. Show me that if you loved me, you would take me on that ride. If you loved me, you'd buy me that t-shirt. If you loved me, you'd get me ice cream. And it's just mind-boggling until I think about all the ways that I do the same thing with God. God, if you love me, uh, you'd get me that job. God, if you loved me, you'd get me out of this situation. God, if you loved me, you would change that person's heart so that we can have a relationship again. God, if you loved me, you would deal with the mental and emotional chaos that I'm battling with right now. God, if you loved me, you'd set me free from my addiction. God, if you loved me, you would give me a partner, a spouse. God, if you loved me, you could give me some kids. God, if you loved me, you would heal me. God, if you loved me, if you loved me, if you loved me. And all of it sounds like this question of the Pharisees. God, give me a sign that you love me. Give me a sign that you're there and a sign that you love me. Show me, prove to me, validate to me that you love me. Jesus' response to the Pharisees wasn't very positive. In verse 39 at the end, he says, no sign will be given except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the fish, so the Son of Man, Jesus, will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Jesus says, you know what? The only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. It's a very cryptic saying. It's not immediately evident uh, what Jesus means. Because in a lot of ways, there are a lot of parallels between Jesus and Jonah, between their ministry careers. See, Jonah, if you don't know the story tell it as briefly as I can. Jonah was a prophet in Israel who was called by God to leave his home in Israel and to travel to Nineveh, which was the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, the global superpower in the Middle East at the time. And he was called by God to go to Nineveh to preach a message of repentance to the Assyrians, to the Ninevites, who were the sworn enemies of Israel and Israel's God. In fact, Assyria... They were a brutal empire. Uh, some of the tools of the trade that the Nazis used in the 20th century, they learned, were pioneered by the Assyrians uh, 700 years before Jesus. 
The Assyrians had been brutal on Israel. If, when we talk about the, the lost tribes of Israel, the 10 lost tribes of Israel, we're describing the part of the Jewish population that vanished from history under the Assyrian rule. They're the sworn enemies. And, and Jonah was not very interested in traveling to the capital city of the global superpower to preach a message of repentance to the sworn enemies of God. It, was like a, it would be like a Jew walking down the streets of Berlin telling the national socialists to repent. As much as there would have been fear, I think what comes out in the story is that Jonah was afraid that God in his compassion, if the Ninevites actually responded, would actually forgive them instead of destroy them. And he couldn't have anything to do with that. So he jumped on a ship and he sailed in the opposite direction, ran away from God. As he was sailing on the ship, a storm kicks up and the storm begins to swirl and the sailors on the ship are beginning to get nervous and eventually they begin to cry out to their gods and begin to ask themselves who it was that made the gods angry so that the sea was kicked up like this and Jonah eventually confesses that he's running away from the God who created heaven and earth and he says, if you just throw me into the water of the Mediterranean, he says, when I go under the water, the, the storm will be calm and your lives will be saved and the soldiers or the sailors pick them up and it's exactly what they do and the storm is calmed and it says they worshiped the God of Israel above the waterline below the waterline Jonah instead of sinking to the bottom and dying at the bottom of the Mediterranean was swallowed up the story goes by a large fish that saved his life the story says he lived in the fish for three days and three nights praying to God and thanking God for sparing him though he didn't deserve it. And three days later, the fish spits Jonah up on the ground and God says, now will you go to Nineveh? And Jonah goes and he preaches the message of repentance. He's, you know, turn from your ways or God is gonna judge this city. And the entire city of Nineveh repents. And God in his compassion, I mean, they hearing about his experience they're just profoundly moved and they repent and God spares them and he brings life to the city instead of destruction. And Jesus says the only sign you're gonna get from God that he is there and that he loves you is the sign of the prophet Jonah. The sign will be the ways in which my story mirrors Jonah's story. See, Jesus, like Jonah, was sent by God to travel to a, a distant place, so to speak, from heaven to earth, to preach a message of repentance to people who were sworn to be God's enemies, not the Ninevites in particular, but all of humanity in general. Like Jonah, Jesus was taken from the earth for three days when he was laid in the ground after he was crucified on the cross. And like Jonah, he emerged three days later to life again when Jesus walked out of the tomb, resurrected. And like Jonah, as the result of his experience of those three days, his message caught fire and God began to work through the message and bring people to repentance so that they could experience the life of God rather than experiencing the judgment of God. Jesus says, if you want proof, if you want evidence that God is there and that God is for you and that God loves you, you don't need to look any further than me. 
then at my life, at my death, and at my resurrection, Jesus says, just look at me. Look at what I have done for you. I came from heaven for you. I became a human being for you. I was born into obscurity and poverty for you. He says, I, I preached the message of God's love for you. I opened the doorway for the love of God to flood into your life through the kingdom of God. I did that for you. I was willing to give my life on the cross for you. I walked out of the tomb for you. I um, sent the Holy Spirit to give new life for you so that everything could be different for you so that God's world could be filled with peace and justice and abundance and harmony for you. I did it for you. And if you've ever wondered, and I know life is not as simple and as cut and dried as this, but the truth remains that if you've ever wondered whether God is really there, if you've ever wondered whether God is for you, if you've ever wondered whether God loves you, you don't need God to flick the lights. And you don't need God to fix your life. You just need to look at the person of Jesus, at his life and his death and his resurrection and in the coming of Jesus is all the sign that we will ever need to know that God is for us. Sometimes I wish (laughs) that in Disney World, one of those parents would just grab their kids by the shoulder and say, you want proof that I love you? I need this from God sometimes. You want proof that I love you? Just take a look around. Here we are, we're in the happiest place on earth with your family, with health enough to enjoy um, the, the fun that's laid out in front of you. Just look around at what I've already done. Think about what I have sacrificed for you. I have given up weeks of vacation for you. I have given up thousands of dollars for you. I have given up my sanity for you to walk around this park for 12 hours and listen to It's a Small World 75 times and to stand in line for four and a half hours to meet Elsa and Anna. What more do I have to do to convince you that I love you? An ice cream is going to change your mind, look at what I've already done and given and been, and I did it for you. And I think that's what God wants to say to us. You beg me to flick the lights. You say that if I loved you, I'd fix your life. And God says, you don't need any of those things to know that I love you. Just look at the person of Jesus. And that's enough. Interesting thing about James. God never flicked the lights. Never did. And yet James discovered in me a friend who loved him with the love of Jesus. He found in our community a whole community of people who were being transformed by the love of Jesus. He found eventually, you know, in our worship services, a sense for himself of the love of Jesus. He found in our life group a community of people who loved him like Jesus loved him. God never flicked the lights for James, he just flicked the light on in his soul. 
at about a year and a half, two years after I first met James in the Connection Lounge as an atheist whose life was falling apart, I had the privilege of standing with him in the baptism tank in our Glenridge location and baptizing him in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, not because God had flicked the lights, but because James was finally able to see Jesus and how Jesus represented the love of God. We come to God and say, God, I want a sign. I want you to prove that you love me. And God says to us, I already have. Just look at Jesus. I want the band to make their way back to the stage. Jesus concludes, you know, as he's talking to the Pharisees, he says in verse 41, he says, the men of Nineveh will stand up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here. Jesus says, listen, at the, on the last day when the judgment comes, he says, the men of Nineveh are going to stand up and they're going to point a finger at you and say, how could you? I said, we, we responded to the preaching of the love of God from a, a crabby, cranky prophet who didn't even want us to get saved. He wanted us to die, and we still responded to his message. Um, you had Jesus. How could you not open your life? How could you not open your heart to see in the person of Jesus the way God has loved you beyond compare? And friends, as we uh, move uh, to close this morning, I want us to take some minutes to sit in the quiet, to sit in the silence, to reflect in our spirit in a way that opens our heart and maybe for the first time allows us to see the way God has loved us in the person of Jesus. The way God's love has surrounded us every moment of every day in the ways that we neglect and forget. Somebody's called it the wallpaper of our lives, the stuff we never think about that fades into the background. But if we were to take a minute to reflect, we would realize how much God has already shown his love for us. When Jesus says, how much more do you want me to do? How much God has already shown his love in, in a million ways in the course of our lives, but in particular in the ways in which God has shown us his love in the person of Jesus. You want a heart that is for God. You want a heart that is wrapped up in the things of God. Nurture a heart that is able to experience the love of God whenever you look at Jesus.